Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name's Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, especially if you're reading my new book, Crucify My Love, which is out on paperback, Kindle ebook, and his podcast. Just search for Mask of the Gods wherever you listen to your podcasts and it should be there. So today, I wanted to talk about something that's been sticking in my craw for a while. I've been going through some of the old documents that I've collected over the years about how Star Trek was put together for the sake of, you know, getting some inspiration. As you know, I am currently working on my own original space opera, and I thought it would be fun to look at a whole bunch of old Star Trek series Bibles as part of that process. And I came over, came across something that immediately explained to me everything that I've been struggling with with Star Trek recently. So before we get into that, if you haven't already, and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or this podcast, please do so. That helps me out a lot, tells the algorithm to share me with more people, and that would just really make my day, because then we'd have a bigger community and more chances to interact with each other. And that's, after all, what this is all about. So what is this groundbreaking thing that I stumbled upon. Well, I'm going to be reading from a series Bible that was produced by Jean Jean and Dorothy. Um, it was written by Jean Roddenberry, Jean Kuhn, and Dorothy Fontana, or DC Fontana. Um, for the original Star Trek, this is a version of it from April 1967. And... I, I just want to read a bit from page 20. I might actually read all of page 20. But this tells me... Uh, this just like showed me everything that I have issue with in the most recent incarnations of Star Trek from the movies on. And actually, when I say that, I'm not just talking about the J.J. Abrams movies. I think you can put Nemesis in here. There are big parts of Insurrection and so forth, that you can put into this category. So, unfortunately, we don't know who wrote what part of this, so I can't attribute it to a specific writer, but this was put together by Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, and DC Fontana. So, here we go. Some basic story situation, but against another background. This time is today. We're in Vietnam, waters aboard the Navy. I'm sorry. We're in Vietnam, waters aboard. Yeah, I can't read today. We're in Vietnam waters aboard the Navy cruiser USS Detroit. Suddenly, an enemy gunboat heads for us. Our guns are unable to stop it, and we realize it's a suicide attack. With an automatic warhead. Total destruction of our vessel, and all aboard appears probable. Would Captain E.L. Henderson, presently commander, commanding the USS Detroit, turn and hug 
a comely female wave who happened to be on the ship's bridge? It's as simple as that. This is our standard test that has led to Star Trek believability. It also suggests much of what has been wrong in filmed SF of the past. No, Captain Henderson wouldn't. Not if he's the kind of captain we hope is commanding any naval vessel of ours. Nor would our Captain Kirk hug a female crewman in a moment of danger. Not if he's to remain believable. Some might prefer Henderson were somewhere making love rather than shelling Asiatic ports, but that's a whole different story for a whole different network, probably the BBC. And so, in every scene of our Star Trek story, translated into a real-life situation or something as useful, try it in your mind as a scene in Gunsmoke, Naked City, or some similar show. Would you believe the people and the scene if it happened there? If you're one of those who answer, the character acts that way because it's science fiction, don't call us, we'll call you. And that last bit is all written in all caps. Okay then, so this is the rule that we're supposed to be applying to all Star Trek, and all sci-fi for that matter. Would the characters believably act that way? Translate it into a real-life scenario, and would the characters behave that way? That is such a simple test. It's so simple that it didn't even dawn on me that that's the problem that I've been having. Cause I've been talking about the melodrama in star Trek and the over the top nature and the weird choices that they made for the character's actions. When it's as simple as would a character act that way? Would any captain facing certain death and dangerous situations sit on the bridge of their warship eating an apple nonchalantly with their legs crossed, ignoring the frantic calls of the other officers on the bridge. Only in J.J. Abrams' world would they do that. You can't imagine a commanding officer doing that in the real world. It's ludicrous. It's insane. And it's not even so over the top that it just looks cool. No, it is bizarre activity. Yet J.J. Abrams included that in his reboot of Star Trek because Captain Kirk's just that kind of nonchalant badass. No, he's not. And by making him into that, you've turned him into a caricature. He's a cartoon character now. He's no longer a character who will take believable action. Yes, that may free you up to be able to do whatever you want with the character going forward because you can literally have them take any action that you want because you've already told us they are not going to be behaving like a rational human actor. 
but it takes away the believability of the character. Now, the funny part is later in the setting Bible, they actually admit that in early episode of season one, they have Kirk do this exact thing where he hugs a yeoman on the bridge when they think the Enterprise is going to be destroyed and basically do a, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, our bad. (laughs) But so just in case you're wanting to pull that out and be like, but they did do that. Yes. And they immediately respond that that was a bad idea and a bad choice on their part. But this is the basic problem that Star Trek has had for an extended period of time. The characters, I would say starting on Voyager, stopped acting in predictable human ways. We stopped looking at them as characters that would react according to real world standards and allowed them to go into the realm of, oh, but it's sci-fi. The first big, big culprit for this is Kess. Kess behaves the way that she does because, well, it's sci-fi and she's this other race and just let Kess be Kess. And the same thing for Neelix, especially for the early seasons. They made some similar excuses for him as well. But you can go back to Deep Space Nine. You could pluck Odo out of Deep Space Nine and throw him into any police procedural. You could put him on JAG. You could put him on any military base or any police force, except for maybe the 9-9, because that's a comedy show and they don't act according to human logic most of them. <laughs> A lot of the time either, but comedy. And he'd fit in because that's the kind of character that Odo is. The same with most of the characters in there. You could put Quark in any gangster bar, in any movie or TV show, in any setting or scenario. And you could see Quark acting the way Quark does for the vast majority of the time. Cisco the same. And we can go back into earlier incarnations of Star Trek and really point and point that out as well. You can even see this in the attempts to rescue some of the weird ideas in All Good Things, the bizarre ending to the next generation. It would be out of character for Q to want to destroy the human race. He has become obsessed with them, especially after his brief stint as being at being one. He has an interesting relationship with Captain Picard, which Data refers to as like a master to their beloved pet. He would not want the human race destroyed, even if the entire continuum agreed that that's what needed to happen. And so the believable thing for this almighty, all-powerful creature to do is to give Picard a fighting chance. He frees Picard from the space-time continuum So he can see the past, the present, and the future and figure out what's going on so he can stop it. While at the same time playing the role that he has to play to make the continuum happy so they don't pull him out of the scenario. He's just helpful enough, but not so helpful that he can't be of aid. That is a believable thing for his character to be doing. Even in this most unbelievable situation of an omnipresent, all-powerful being casting somebody through time 
so that they can save the human race. This is something that Star Trek has forgotten. And like I said, you can see this with the early offenders in Voyager. You can see this throughout Enterprise. And you can see it in the J.J. Abrams reboot movies. So no wonder this becomes an infection that goes into Star Trek Discovery, where characters do not act like they would in any other scenario. Take the scene that has bothered me most for years now in Star Trek Discovery, when Ash kills Dr. Culber. Why does this upset me so much? Because they didn't follow this very rule. They didn't. And it's a very simple rule to try to follow. Pull it out of this scenario into any other and ask yourself what would happen. Would they act like that? No. When you just discover that the patient that you're treating is an enemy agent who is a threat, do you, A, walk up to them, tell them, I'm the only one that knows that you're a bad guy and I'm going to tell. Or do you treat them like normal, find an excuse to leave, tell security, and then tell the command staff what you found, which is a believable action. In any scenario, that's what should happen. But he doesn't. And Michael very rarely acts in a believable way. And their solution is always, well, it's sci-fi. They don't say it overtly. They don't come out and just say it, but you can see it in their reaction. Why does Michael cry all the time? Because it's drama. No, she was one, was raised on Vulcan, which means she should have better control of her emotions. And two, it doesn't make sense. You're going to risk everything in the universe because you have feelings right now in what kind of a rational world does that make sense yes you may have qualms yes you may hesitate but standing and weeping openly in front of everyone that is an over-the-top reaction that makes her character less believable if you were to put that in any other situation it no longer makes sense because it doesn't make sense in its original context either. This is the biggest problem with the ending of season two. We get to the end, and let's just all agree that none of this ever happened, says Spock. And everybody agrees to agree that none of this ever happens. Well, the problem with that means the Federation participated in a cover-up. You know what happens with cover-ups? They get exposed. They do. Organizations are very notoriously bad at keeping secrets, and the more people that are involved in keeping a secret, the more likely it is that someone's going to talk about it. Even with the stakes being, it will be treason to talk about this. Yeah, but there's four, what, 430-some people on the Enterprise? None of them are going to talk. Absolutely none of them are going to talk. None of the people at the station that Spock broke out of are going to talk about the weirdness there. There's no one in Starfleet Command or their command staff who may have overheard 
or witnessed any of the madness that was going on that isn't going to talk. It's an unbelievable scenario. People will talk. Eventually, it will come out. You cannot keep secrets secret. So, why did they do that? Because they were trying to placate the fans. They didn't ask themselves the basic questions all along of, is this a believable action that would take place? None of the characters since Voyager, and Voyager's got its moments. I don't think I'm just beating on Voyager, but you can see this tendency of, well, we're going to do that because Star Trek really start bleeding in in Voyager. Where most of the decisions that get made are because, you know, it's sci-fi. And that's what we're going to do. And it gives us a lot of unbelievable, predictable characters. So all Star Trek has to do to get good again is ask itself that basic question. This is probably why I and others reacted so negatively to that Picard trailer, to that teaser that came out. It doesn't make sense for his character to act in the way that you have him acting. If you were to take him out of any scenario, this is a man who fought, who suffered, and now he's just going to give up? And see, the problem for us, whether or not you like his politics or not, is we kind of have several real-world people that we can look at here, and see how they may or may not have reacted to this. We can look at somebody like a John McCain, for example, who was tortured much for his country. And we see that with Picard, right? These very strong-willed people who have very strong opinions about how their country and state should act and behave, and how people within it should act and behave, who were tortured on behalf of the country, and saw many terrible things happen, both in the government and outside the government, for decades. It's not an equivalent example, because as far as I know, John McCain never saved the entire human race because he was able to figure out an extraterrestrial's plan to eradicate all life. Though he might have, and we just haven't heard yet. I don't know. The world's weird. I wouldn't put much past anything anymore, but it's still not a bad example. And throughout his life, he stood up for the things that he believed in all the way to the point of doing it while suffering from cancer. So if in a real world scenario, a character like John McCain or a character like Winston Churchill can stand up for their beliefs throughout their life, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever you think about them, We have their example of being able to do that. They never gave up. But Picard does for some reason. And remember, when I used the John McCain analogy, this is a man who was tortured in Vietnam, who then found out his government was torturing other people. His response was not to leave the Senate and just go and be a rancher in Arizona. Which could have been his reaction. It honestly could have been. And that's the reaction we get from Picard. So when we put his character into a real-life scenario, you have to start thinking of crazy things. What would cause Picard to leave the Federation? What would have been so bad that he would have left? Yeah. And that's the problem. It doesn't stand up to the real-life 
scenario. And it really should. And this is a beautiful piece of writing advice that all of us who write science fiction and fantasy should try to live by as best as we can. But it's something that if you're doing Star Trek, like you don't have to hold to everything that Gene Roddenberry ever wrote. And again, I don't know that he wrote this because, you know, three people were involved in the creation of this document, but you don't have to stick to the creator's intent 100%. But one of the things that has always made Star Trek feel like Star Trek is that the characters, even in insane sci-fi scenarios, still reacted believably. And they don't anymore. So I advise anybody who's working for the upcoming Star Trek series or any of the Star Trek series, it's called the Star Trek Guide. This is, I'm reading from the third revision from April 17th, 1967. You should have these in the archive. If not, they're available online. And if you can't find an online repository for, for them, just contact me. I'll email you the copy that I have. <laughs> it's not a complete copy, but it's what I've got. Eh. But at least I understand now, and hopefully you do a little bit better as well. If you enjoyed this episode, and you haven't already, please like the episode in whatever app you're listening to me on. Leave a review. That helps out a lot, too. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. That helps out a bunch. If you've got a buck you can throw my way, in the show notes you can see a link to both the Patreon and the Community Support tab. If you click either one of those, you can join the project for as little as a dollar a month. That money helps me do everything that I do, and I really do appreciate your support. If you don't have the money to join the project right now, I completely understand that. Like, not having money is kind of my thing in life. But if you know somebody you think would enjoy this podcast, please share it with them. That helps out a bunch, too. If you have a question, comment, or topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show, in the show notes, you'll find a link to the leave me a voice message. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show, and I would love to hear from you that way. Or you can hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. I am C.E. Dorset on both. You can find links to everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. And until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye.